Located in the central flyway, Port Aransas, Texas boasts hundreds of native and migrating species with a gorgeous island backdrop. With six sites along the Great Texas Coastal Birding Trail, the island offers up-close vantage points to marvel at the magnificent migrating birds that consider Port A the ideal rest stop. Get your tickets to the Whooping Crane Festival and celebrate their annual return to their wintering habitat. Go to visitportaransas.com birding to plan your visit. We'd all love to spend more time outside, see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it, but modern life pushes us away from nature. Enter Birda. Birda is the new free app that boosts your bird watching experience, fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn sing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Birda. Sign up today. It's free. You can find Birda, B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. eBirds 2023 taxonomy update is coming soon. A lot of folks probably assume that eBirds changes are more or less the same as those made by the AOS classification committee every summer, the ones that we talk about with Nick Block. And while that is usually the case, that is not always the case. In fact, in recent years, eBird and the AOS have diverged in some significant and not so significant ways. And this affects ABA birders because the official ABA checklist is tied to the AOS committee's decisions and not to eBird, which is the Clements checklist after ornithologist James Clement, and most notably is the taxonomy that most of us actually use to maintain our personal life lists. I am personally and obviously professionally associated with the ABA. But like most of you, I imagine I rely on eBird to handle all the nuts and bolts of taxonomy so I don't have to. I am not interested in maintaining my own personal list on my own personal spreadsheet document that requires somewhat significant annual changes, especially if eBird is going to do all that for me. That is, in fact, one of the great things about eBird. So what are the notable differences between the two lists? Well, most of them have been in taxonomic order, which is not the sort of thing that will impact birds on a species count level and therefore is not the sort of thing that birders always notice. eBird has split species before the AOS has done so. For example, Mexican duck was on your eBird list about a year before it was on your ABA list. I wonder how many people noticed that. I bet it's not very many. For this year, big things like the western flycatcher lump are shared. The goshawk split is also shared, though I reckon that would affect very few, if any, ABA area birders, it just means another bird on the ABA list or more commonly a different name. An example of that, eBird is going to split cattle egret this year into Western and Eastern cattle egret. The Western birds are the ones that colonized the Americas. So on eBird, you will see Western cattle egret, but on the AOS slash ABA list, it will remain just cattle egret. Also, common house martin will be split on eBird, though that split has not been accepted by the AOS. We have had at least one of Western house martin, which is the European one from Eastern Canada. Same goes for lesser sand plover into Siberian and Tibetan sand plover. I think both of those have occurred in the ABA area, though that will not be represented on the ABA checklist at this time. And so far, eBird and Clements have hesitated to make significant taxonomic changes that would make the two checklists wholly incompatible for rank-and-file birders in the U.S. and Canada, though the efforts undertaken by eBird along with other international taxonomic bodies to create a globally shared bird taxonomy that is underway now could perhaps 
do that. IOC is the other big bird taxonomy body that is frequently used by old world birders. It splits things like yellow-rumped warbler and willet, among others, both of which have been the subject of recent proposals to the AOS that have not been accepted. Could we see an eBird update in the not-too-distant future that does include Myrtle Warbler and Western Willet? Maybe. What that means for birders is that they'll have to make a choice, and speaking for myself, I'll probably, understandably, as will you, make the choice for more species because diversity is cool and a half a dozen more species in your life list doesn't hurt, but also because it's easier. Will the ABA be forced to make a decision between sticking with the AOS or tossing in with eBird and the global taxonomy folks? It is something that we have discussed back channel. And if I'm reading the tea leaves, the time for that decision might be edging closer. On the show this week, we talk about the funny and fascinating golden collared mannequin with Dr. Barney Schlinger, tropical researcher and author of the new book, The Wing Snappers, Lessons from an Exuberant Tropical Bird. He joins us right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of October 2023. For much of the East, fall is vagrant flycatcher season, and this week kicks that time of year off with a bang with the discovery of a Pennsylvania first record of western wood peewee in Westmoreland County. This bird was captured at a banding station, which is a popular story for many of the more difficult flycatcher species. Western wood peewee is almost certainly an underrepresented vagrant in the East, owing to the fact that there are still many Eastern wood peewees around. There are previous records of this species in the region, many of which, including birds from Southern Ontario and two from Virginia and one from Maine, also come from birds captured at banding stations. Speaking of Maine, a Hammonds flycatcher on Monhegan Island represents a first for that state, filling in the gap between a cluster of sightings of the species in Massachusetts and a cluster in Nova Scotia. Other flycatchers of note for the period include Michigan's fourth tropical kingbird in Monroe County, North Carolina's second gray flycatcher in Carteret County, Rhode Island's sixth says Phoebe in Johnston, and Maryland's fifth western flycatcher, just in time for the split, captured at a banding station near Chesterton. And just to reiterate that the Limpkin invasion of 2020 is still a thing here in 2023, Nova Scotia hosted a Limpkin this week in Liverpool. This is shockingly not Nova Scotia's first Limpkin. There are historic records for the province from the 1950s and possibly from the 1960s as well. But this is the first since the current vagrancy phenomenon began. Those are the highlights for the past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Mannequins are among the most unique and fascinating neotropical bird families with displays that run the gamut from group line dancing to bizarre percussive feather snaps in a part of the world where every bird seemingly has a gimmick, that of mannequins is especially noteworthy. One species in particular has long fascinated UCLA researcher Dr. Barney Schlinger, the golden-collared mannequin of Panama and Western Colombia. It is the subject of his book, The Wing Snappers, Lessons from an Exuberant Tropical Bird. He's here to talk about the book and the bird. Welcome, Barney. Thanks for having me. Of course, you know, of all the many, many hundreds of birds in the tropical Americas to, to really dig deep into. What was it about golden collared mannequin that really captured your attention initially? Well, you know, the, the bird has just an extraordinary courtship display that mm. anybody who sees it or hears it uh, is 
attracted to. And uh, uh, so they're very, uh, they can be quite common in areas around uh, this village of Gamboa, mm-hmm. which is where the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute has uh, facilities. So many people over the years have visited Stry and uh, have heard these birds and know a great deal about them. And, uh, you know, I was there and they're, they're you know, you often have this idea that that things in nature, uh, if they're unusual, then they must be rare or mm-hmm. or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And 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 that's just not the case. These birds are quite common. And uh, I was uh, doing research on on songbirds and and other birds in, in North America. And uh, when I realized that this bird was common, and at that point uh, they're, they're just you know, there have been studies done back in 1935 mm-hmm. uh, by Frank Chapman, but there hadn't been at that point much, uh, when I started, much uh, new. And so hmm. I just dove right in. Do you think people tend to overlook birds like that sometimes because they do feel common and it feels like, well, this is a bird that we should know a lot about already. And it, it turns out that that's not the case. Every bird, frankly, is cool. Uh, yeah, I no, mean, I, I just, I just, you know, <laughs> and you, yeah, I mean, you know, preaching to the choir. I, I mean, it's just true. You, you, uh, if you, if you, if you think about it in the right way, mm-hmm. um, you can, um, you know, even birds that are, that are common, uh, or, you know, people think pigeons are pests. Well, mm-hmm. well, my goodness, pigeons are, they live everywhere. I mean, yeah. they are in the high Arctic. They are in the desert. They they are one of the most magnificent species, even though most people find them annoying. So, <laughs> um, um, so when you have a bird like the mannequin that's doing something really spectacular, it's hard to it's hard to ignore. For people who may not be familiar with what golden crown golden collared mannequins do, could you describe that uh, that fantastic display yeah. and sort of explain what's going on both in terms of you know what an observer might see and what people might miss who are just watching that. Yeah. So th- these birds, uh, the first of all, the males are a beautiful golden yellow color with a black cap and black wings and an, and an olive belly. The females are t- tend to be in a, an olive, dull olive green color. So the males are striking in a color with these bright red legs. And they clear a little patch of forest floor, which is a big deal. I, I have a whole chapter in the book about that. Yeah. But um, they they keep a, a patch of forest clear that has that is in between three small saplings, and between those saplings, they do their courtship display or their dance. And the dance consists of these rapid, powerful jumps from stem to stem and the birds throw their wings over their back in mid-flight or mid-jump and uh, throw their wrists together and make this very powerful loud snapping sound. Um, They can jump to the ground and do a half twist with a back flip and uh, and then springboard up to uh, a stem all the while making these loud vocalizations and other peculiar sounds that they make with their wings. And, uh, but 
so that's spectacular and it's loud and noisy and extraordinary. Um, but what adds to it is that these males gather together in Lex and there can be, you know, approximately say four males in a, or five males or six males in an acre of forest, maybe even a few more. Um, and that can, there can be a lek that just has five or six males. There can be leks that have, uh, many dozens. And when they are all performing their courtship and making these loud snapping sounds and these roll snaps, the forest just explodes in sound. It, it is, uh, it is quite a treat to hear it, you know. And, uh, so when you see them, if you're lucky enough to see a male doing his courtship, it's just these frenetic movements yeah. that, that you see if you're lucky <laughs> enough to see it. And, and it just, you know, you hear the sound and you see all this movement. But what we did is we used a very high speed, uh, video to be able to then slow it down. And, uh, when you view this courtship display in slow motion, uh, and again, from a thousand frames per second that's then played back at 30 frames per second. Yeah, I was just going to ask how slow does it have to be? Cause they're yeah. really moving. <laughs> but you, you just see that the moves that they are demonstrating are just, they're, they're perfect. I mean, they are, they land absolutely perfectly on the perch and they throw their head up to show off their, their, they have these golden feathers under their uh, lower mandible that they erect as, as a beard like a dewlap of a lizard and the um, they just display perfectly and, and it's beautiful. Um, and it's uh, so that's what is one of the things that's so fantastic is just how this is just a, it's a stunningly uh, perfect acrobatic routine mm -hmm. uh, that, you know what impresses me as a as a scientist is just this is this is the nervous system is controlling the muscles and and it's just impeccable yeah what what is sort of going on physically with the bird's wings and the muscles and sort of simultaneously with the bird's brain when they are doing this like how do you how do you go about searching for that the answers to that question um uh, it's it's a a lot of work doing a lot of different things, and we've uh, um, and, and and I'm not the only one who's explored this. The, the process of making these loud wing snaps mm -hmm. uh, has uh, intrigued people from again from the time of Frank Chapman in 1935, and he sent some specimens to a fellow named Percy Lowe who studied the anatomy of the bird and published that in 1942. And then um, Rick Prom and his colleagues, Ken Boswick, did some high-speed video. And, 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 and all of our work and their, all of these studies together show that these birds are really throwing their wings over their back and their wrists are colliding and the bones mm. are vibrating to make a loud mm. snap That's sound. That's what does it, yeah. And yeah. It's, uh, it's quite remarkable uh in in both the the coordination the speed the wings are thrown together powerfully when the males do this roll snap you know this <clears throat> where each mm -hmm. one of those 
best it sounds yeah is the wrist striking each other so they're right. pounding their wings together over their back uh you, you know at a at a at the, the speed a hummingbird you know yeah. flaps its wings but it but this bird is hitting its wings together so yeah. it's really uh extraordinary i um i had the good fortune to observe a golden collared mannequin when i was in panama around this time last year it was not like a full adult the full lek experience it was actually yeah. what appeared to be a young male that yeah. was basically practicing yeah. kind of doing yeah. its it wasn't there weren't any females around it was kind of on its own in a little tiny clearing and it uh-huh. was bouncing around kind of awkwardly like it yeah. didn't seem like it knew exactly what to do this is i think that's what some people don't appreciate about with these birds is that this is you know this is a learned behavior that takes time to get good at uh to be able to perform on a on a on the big stage as it were yeah i mean there's two things going on with that mm-hmm. one of which is that the 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 juvenile males in their first couple of years they retain the the green olive green plumage that mm-hmm. the adult female has and so it takes them a couple of years before they become an adult and during that period of time their testosterone levels in their blood are basal. Mm-hmm. So the, even though there is no testosterone, the males still have some motivation yeah. to try to do this behavior. Um, they just don't do it very well until they become adults and then the testosterone can trigger them and the behavior becomes much better. So, huh. Huh. so testosterone itself seems to act on the neuromuscular systems and, and we have, you know, demonstrated this and have good evidence of this um so testosterone is important to make the display better but at the same time we also think these juvenile males are are learning they mm-hmm. these green males are hanging out at these legs of the adult males some people believe that their green color uh is a color that because makes them look like females so they can enter into the legs yeah. And sneak copulations with females. Because huh. you see that. You see, yeah. oh, wow. you, you'll see a green bird moving through the forest chasing another green bird and emitting a snap or two. And so, but we also think that these juvenile males, by appearing to look like females, may actually join adult males in the courtship routine. So that's something I didn't hmm. explain. When when a female enters into the lek, she will check out a number of different males on their courts and then choose one with whom to 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 mate. But before she mates, she joins him in this dance where so it's like a coordinated thing. That's right. It, yeah. Except that the male is jumping from branch to branch and the uh-huh. female is kind of awkwardly flying from branch <laughs> to branch and she's not snapping her wings. But it, it seems like, and again, I don't have definitive evidence of this, but I do believe that there are juvenile males that will come in and either watch or maybe even join the male in the dance. And then they fly off to the edge of the lek and do what you saw. Mm-hmm. You, you see them practicing uh, and doing this kind of awkward, slow you know, the snap sounds are very soft. Uh, it's just not, you know, what an adult male does. 
Yeah, and that's not that that's not uncommon for mannequins, is it? You know, the you know the this coordinated cooperative display is something that you see across a number of different mannequin species. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure this is cooperative, but mm. but it's it's but it certainly is. A, there's a learning component to it, and that's mm. very yes across several uh, mannequin species that have been studied, where you might have an alpha male and a beta right. male, or one alpha male and a number of beta males, and they have to, they have to, uh, they have to identify males that are the alpha males that are copulating. They have to uh, grow older and hope to assume an alpha position, mm -hmm. and and so there is that aspect of it that we believe is going on in the golden collar mannequin too. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um. One of the more interesting aspects of your studies was the fact that you could effectively use kind of captured wild birds on site in Gamboa at the research station and then observe them in a way that you definitely could not do in the field or wouldn't be as easy in the field. Um, is this sort of a common practice with these birds in particular, or is it unique to the work that you were doing in Panama? Um, I assume you're speaking about the aviaries. That yeah, we, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, it's not as common as you'd think, but certainly people do take birds into captivity right. and can, and, you know, many people who do the neuroscience or, or physiology would often keep birds in little cages, but some people have uh, taken it to the next step and actually have birds living in aviaries where they can perform natural kinds of behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, I actually learned to do this from a, um, a gentleman who lived in Panama, who was a, uh, he actually was working with the Panamanian government. And when people were trying to uh, export or import endangered birds through Panama, mm -hmm. he would be, they would bring the birds to him and he would hold them in captivity. And he had an aviary huh. uh, that he had mannequins and they were displaying and breeding. So, huh, so wow. he was actually collecting eggs and putting them in an incubator when the females laid their eggs. And, and so, uh, how large do the the aviaries have to be to get the mannequins to, you know, give you natural behavior? Yeah. Well, we inherited an aviary in Panama that was uh, in the middle of the rainforest. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, uh, it was five meters wide by ten meters long, oh. and we brought dirt in and we planted plants in a way that we thought would look like the kinds of, you know, assemblages of, of stems that the, the males mm -hmm. would like. And they started displaying, very, we gave them testosterone mm -hmm. and they started <laughs> displaying yeah. almost immediately. Yeah. Um, so uh, that worked very well. We, we did try a similar thing in an aviary, in, you know, that were maybe five feet by five feet five feet and that didn't work so yeah, uh yeah. so the bigger aviary was just fine huh and do they keep relatively small territories in in general or i mean i guess tropical birds frequently keep relatively small territories because there there's plenty of food to be found around there yeah i mean again there varies by species but yeah, there these birds because they have these legs um it seems to be it to benefit them to be fairly close, mm -hmm. probably because the more birds you have 
that are making noise, the normal males that you have making noise, yeah. that noise is going to travel farther out into the forest and females that are moving about are going to hear it and be attracted in. So, um, you, you know, at the very beginning of the season when they start uh, to to breed, <coughs> uh, which is at the beginning of the dry season and, and where we work in, in, in January, um, the, the males do fight a bit. Um, and, uh, but there, there, there can be arenas of two different males that can be, you know, 10, 10 meters apart, mm-hmm. which, which for, uh, birds is, that's a pretty small, yeah. you know, territory, if you want to call it that. Yeah. yeah. What kind of experiments can you do in these aviaries that you probably couldn't do with these birds in the, in the field? Well, there's, there's, you know, the sky's the limit in some, yeah, in some, so. <laughs> in some way. Um, we are, are one of our initial questions. I'm very interested in the ways in which hormones control behavior mm-hmm. and the way that sex differences in behavior evolve and develop. Um, and, you know, we knew that males, when you take a juvenile male and you give him testosterone, he will, his courtship displays will increase dramatically hmm. um, due to the presence of testosterone. Both, both quality and, you know, just yeah, yes. energetic. That's right. Is. That's yeah. right. And, and you can do that actually in the wild with a male because they tend to be quite sight faithful. So mm-hmm. if you catch a male, you can give him a little bit of testosterone and let him go and he'll stay close by. And you can then watch it and see how his behavior changes day after day. Mm-hmm. Well, we wanted to know what would happen to females if you gave them some testosterone. Would they mm-hmm. suddenly start behaving like the males? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that when we gave a little testosterone to females, they just disappeared in the forest <laughs> and we never saw them. Right, yeah. So one of the reasons we developed the aviary use was to keep females in the aviaries, and we gave them testosterone to see what would happen. And that was that was why we developed the aviary use yeah. uh, initially. And I can just tell you that the testosterone didn't do much. It didn't do much. Very little. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you enjoy the observational part of these uh, this research or the, the biochemical kind of genetic laboratory part of this research and the stories that it tells you more? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or they both kind of feed into each other, I imagine. Well, they totally do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I started out in, 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 you know, I was a total naturalist as a kid. I mm-hmm. mean, I just liked being outdoors and liked animals. And, uh, and, and, you know, when I discovered birds, I just, you know, like, I mean, I was a hardcore bird watcher, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, and, um, and and that's what led me to Panama initially was just bird watching and so yeah. watching and being in the forest is, uh, I mean it's just magical. Uh, I mean I, you know, to be in a a, a a wonderful, beautiful rainforest and and then having something so spectacular like that occurring right in front of you is uh it's hard to 
describe. It, mm-hmm. It's it's beautiful. It's it's wondrous. It's 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 nature, and it's you know, and it's and it's peak. Um, but at the same time, it's like, how do they do it? Um, yeah. What you know, or and why don't these other birds do it? Or why you know? I mean, it raises so many different questions, and those kinds of questions can best be explored often in the laboratory or mm-hmm. you know, with specimens or with DNA or blood samples or whatever. And uh, and that was another part of my myself that I, I didn't really discover until I went back to graduate school and physiology became uh, just fascinating to me. And, and when I realized, realized I could link physiological studies with with studies in nature, it, it just, that was, that was the right call for me. Yeah. I, saying, yeah, I realized that the, the question could have been like, do you enjoy the questions or the answers, right? Because the time in nature almost, almost frequently gives you the questions and then you have to take the answers somewhere else. But uh, it must be very satisfying to, to find at least clues towards those answers because it sometimes feels like you never quite get them all answered. Oh, you, you never do. And, <laughs> yeah. and of course, and, and of course, every answer that you get raises <laughs> More questions. Does it more questions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it, 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 and that's and that's that's science. I mean that yeah. that's science. However, you're 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 thinking about doing it, whether you're working on birds or or chemicals or mm-hmm. structures. I mean, it's uh, it just let me just add one quick last Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. That, you know, I I I, I just want to, um, you know, even though this is about a bird in the tropics. Um, I know a lot of people who are interested in bird watching, you know, tend to bird locally. And, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that learning about birds and reading about physiology or things, you know, a bird in the tropics, they can take a lot of this information and apply it to the birds that you see in yeah, your neighborhood. Yeah. And, I, and that was my hope in this book is to mm-hmm. try to write things, uh, to make it accessible so that people could could look at all the birds around them and see them as special as they are. Absolutely. Always ask questions about the birds that you're seeing. Yeah. You never know where it'll take you. That's for that's sure. Right. Does your experience as a, as a physiologist in some way help you look at that time in the forest in a slightly different way? Like, do you, I suppose you're, you're asking different questions now than you were when you first started. Uh, as a naturalist, like because you have the the benefit of having a little more information and a little more insight into what's actually going on. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you, you think about okay, so here's a here's a little mannequin um, in the forest, um, keeping this little patch clear. The rainforest in, in the in the dry season is frankly hot, and mm-hmm. uh, and it can be dry. And there's leaves falling all around because the trees are dropping their leaves. You know, they're deciduous in the dry season. Um, and in the, in the wet season, it's raining, you know, you know, tens of centimeters a day sometimes. And here are these little animals that live just perfectly. I mean, they, so, so you think about the physiology of how do they do that? How, are they, how do they get enough food during the wet season? How do they stay dry? How do they, um, how do they perform such an acrobatic, what appears to be energy intensive mm-hmm. courtship display and have enough fuel 
and the metabolic capability to, to sustain them. And, um, and then you think, well, what about a bird that lives in, you know, the, the, how does that compare to a bird that lives in the Arctic or the Antarctic or, mm-hmm. or, and that has a completely different, um, set of environmental conditions that they have to experience mm-hmm. or birds that migrate versus those that don't migrate. I mean, the physiology, the neuroscience that under, you know, the, the metabolism, the, yeah. Temperature regulation. I mean, all of the things that the cardiovascular function, all of the things that must that make an, an animal work. Well, they have to be adapted for just those conditions yeah. and experiences. And uh, you, it, it's why I, I, you know, in my book, I try to encourage people to, um, and I would encourage people now. It, you know, every time you see a bird, you know, if it flies by. Just think about everything that's going on in its in its body. I mean, it, it's uh, how it's metabolizing, how it's dealing with the heat or the cold or the wind or, um, uh, you know, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Birders who have visited Panama have gone to Canopy Tower are fairly familiar with the Gambo area. It's right there. Many yeah. of the birding locations are quite close. You end up driving through the town regularly. Certainly tropical researchers know Gamboa very well. Um, it's, it's amazing that there's so much to know and so much to learn in a place that seems on the surface to be kind of well picked over. Um, I suppose that's a testament to the, the biological richness of the area and the infinite possibilities of studying tropical ecology. Do you, when you visit there now, do you still kind of see all those possibilities you know, beyond just the, the, the mannequin stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, uh, you know, one of the one of the challenges of being a scientist is uh, is to not get distracted, um, <laughs> yeah. and um, because I mean, some people who are really really intelligent and have a tremendous amount of energy. You know they can take on multiple projects and and you know pursue them and make good progress. Um, but it's often the case that people will they'll there's so much richness of questions around you that you can get distracted and you tend not to make a, a lot of progress on any <laughs> one thing. And so um, um, I, I have focused on these these birds. Uh, but certainly there, you know, there's what people have reported over 500 species along pipeline road. Oh yeah. And, uh, so there's room for a lot of, uh, a lot of research. That's for sure. The book is the wing snappers. Not only is it a, an interesting look at a common tropical species, but offers some neat insights into how research is done in the field on a practical level. The author is uh, Dr. Barney Schlinger of UCLA. Congrats on the book, and uh, thanks again for the conversation. You bet. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like this podcast, but membership also gets a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. 
Special shout outs this week to James Levine of Somerville, Massachusetts and Dustin Weedner of Chicago, Illinois, both of whom joined the ABA, noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you to James and Dustin. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Clockner, who was certain that Golden Collared Mannequin was a headline from when the 1987 Andrew McCartney film was nominated for a Best Original Song Academy Award, which is the true thing that actually happened. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was surprised that a mannequin who is unable to perform the mating dance successfully isn't called a mannequant. Additional help comes from Maggie, Fitzgibbon, and Greg Neese, who imagined the temptation for Barney Schlinger and colleagues not to refer to the birds doing elaborate flips as mannequin skywalkers must be irresistible. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. We'll see you next week.